0: to Unraveled, the Artwerk Podcast
1: Welcome to Unraveled, the Artwerk Podcast. With me are my co presenters Nina Kettiger, Swiss French artist, and Philippe Indal, writer and art critic. My name is Bernard Vienna, and I am an art historian, writer and curator. We recently had the opportunity to sit down and talk to the artist Egor Kraft. So, Nina, can you tell us more about him?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Egor Kraft lives between Moscow, Berlin and Vienna. He's an artist who has a keen interest in media, tech and film. A prominent example of his work is the piece The New Color. Uh, it was presented at the Moscow International Biennial for Young Art, and for this work he created the website for a fictional um, company on which he announced the discovery of a new color, which prompted private individuals and companies to get in touch with him as they wanted to see and buy his product. Um, Igor Hack's design and technology and his work kind of gives a glimpse at how false information comes into being, what we would know refer to as alternative facts, so to say. We recently visited Egor show at the Gallery Alexander Levy in Berlin. This particular exhibition was called Content-Aware Studies, which is also the title of a corpus of work he executed in 2018. It featured sculptors that unite two different times, um, on one hand classical antiquity, and on the other hand, the latest technology of our days, he used artificial intelligence and 3D printing to restore fragments of sculpture. And I guess as artificial intelligence has become a part of our lives, you know, maybe as personal assistants, recommendational algorithms, or simply, you know, Facebook or Twitter timelines, we asked Igor about the relevance of this technology in his work and kind of about the frame of his speculative research in this field. So maybe, Pernan, you want to talk to us about your first encounter with him? Sure.
1: We sat down at my place in Berlin and I first asked him, focusing on artificial intelligence, to situate his work and give some insight about his new series. Yeah,
2: I would say there's two ways in which I'm interested in working and looking at AI. Uh, and they both correlate with my two of my ongoing projects. Uh, One of them is the one which you have seen at Alexander's place. Um, It's called Content to West, and it's a project in which I'm exploiting the potentialities of AI to, to do this kind of speculative research or speculative restoration about its capabilities of restoring the lost and missing fragments of sculptures, uh, and in this case, I'm taking a Classical Antiquity as a subject, uh, as a first phase of the project. I'm not really interested in just working with Classical Antiquity, but I was really interested to start with, because it's a very canonized kind of aesthetic, and how is it to be seen through the lens of AI, or through the lens of machine vision, if you like. Um, and in this project, I'm really um, actually working deeply with the technology of AI, actually involving the technology of AI in my practice um and getting my hands in there but also co-producing the work together with ai if you like and the other work which is um which is also an ongoing project which is called air kiss a film um, has a lot more of a speculative character to it i think this is this is the one where i actually purely look at ai from from maybe from humanities perspective but also from the um, kind of in- infrastructural and social political economical questions that that are uh, rising in this again speculative research about how can we potentially replace political apparatus with ai and how would it is how
1: can it be potentially
2: uh, set in place, and how it can operate, on what it could operate?
1: So, in a sense, there is one more, let's say, practical aspect, and one more speculative one. If I, because if I take the the, the project content-aware studies, um, I, I I discover re, a real AI working in front of me, a computer generating thousands of images, and. The computer was part of your work, in a sense that uh, you, you, you developed 3D printed um, sculptures that were completing and repairing those antiquities, so to say. Mm-hmm. Um, Rafa, you are trying to, to work with programmers. Well, I'm, only, I'm
2: only collaborating with, um, with uh, Artem, and Artem Kanievsky is an uh, independent Developer and, and researcher. He also has a degree in, in physics, and together we've been working on content aware studies since August. I have been working with a few other researchers previously um, from from academic contexts, but um, just to answer your question, maybe I'm I'm trying to get as deep as I can in terms of my possibilities. Also, but working with AI today is can be quite Challenging for various reasons. For for just uh, reasons of resources, it's not that. Yes, we can. We have access to uh, to amazing codes published on GitHub, which we can which we can uh, utilize and which we can also adopt to what we want to do with it. But there is also a lot of hardware uh, related things. If you want to really go deep and quick with AI research, you need a number of GPUs or like a a good uh, hardware base. So I think like the biggest limitation that we have right now in our research and our practices is this uh, hardware that we use for computing. And I'm also very much interested in like what role does the hardware play in the whole of AI research that is being done today? Also, especially given that the industry is extremely monopolized right now. Uh, and the whole of industry that, that that produces GPUs. Obviously, many of these GPUs are being part of AI research and AI production, but they are also widely used in everything to do with blockchain and crypto industries, and also VR industries. <laughs>
0: That's great. It reminds me, you know, of artists such as Trevor Paglen, who uses facial recognition software that resembles, you know, the one used by companies such as Facebook, as mentioned mentioned earlier, or you know, Hito Steyo's work, who made a film that shows the creation of a data set of a security company, which was developing a system that can detect the sound of shattering windows. And I mean, all of that sounds maybe more commercial to me, I guess.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Egor has chosen the field of archaeology, which is not yet in the focus of machine learning. But you know, there is initiatives such as Google Arts and Culture that are already busy digitalizing museum collections worldwide and testing the image recognition abilities of AI. If you want to teach anything to an artificial intelligence, you need to feed the algorithms with data. Therefore, I ask Egor, how it teaches a computer to repair fragments and where it gets his image set.
2: So if you want to start working with the edge testing, you knew, you do need is a data set. So first thing that you need is a collection of data. In our case it was it was 3D scans. It was it was 3D scans of classical antiquity sculptures that are part of large museum collections all over the world. So in order to, 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 to do the first step, we had to find a lot, of, a lot of these 3D scans that are in public domain, which you can download. We had to request some of them from large institutions, such as British Museum or Metropolitan Museum. There is not so many museums I need to mention that have actually made like 3D scans of their collection, which is, I think, a shame, given that 2018 brought us this like really sad story about the Brazilian museum going on fire and us losing a lot of extremely important historical documents. Part of the data we have also produced ourselves, so part of it I was able to, to scan myself. In, I come from St. Petersburg, Russia, and, and, and I, part of the project I was de- developing from there. Um, and I was lucky to have access to Hermitage, for example, or to a collection of sculptures in the Academy of Fine Arts.
1: But can you imagine that this dataset might be used once for practical application by restorators who would need, for instance, to repair some sculptures? I can imagine this is possible. But I think the
2: more, um, the more you see what is being released now in, in, in this technology, uh, especially all this research produced by NVIDIA that have actually mon- monopolized the whole uh, GPU industry, you can see a a high accuracy and, and a growing and the growing quality of producing a f- hyper-realistic imagery. So in that sense, I think it could be used. I think I still think that humans are much would be much better in doing this. But I'm also, I must say that I'm not so much interested in this. I'm much more interested in in the whole idea of approaching history with such technology or like trying to um, reconstruct history or histories and involving AI as a, um, as a very sort of instrumentalized tool for uh, a high degree of precision or for example a um, kind of looking at it as um, as as a tool not an agency in the sense that, if we are dealing with histories and if we need to uh, maybe find the um, most accurate scenario of the past, it might be, and I think it's a case of, it it's very often happens, that we have various sources that provide us with very different information. And then we realize that it's probably to do with, with some sort of bias, right, uh, which is very natural to human, uh, any kind of knowledge production, right? Right. In this case, we can speculate about AI as a as a more as a, as a more precise kind of instrument that is that also does not have this bias, which I would argue it cannot be in no way because it is biased just by the nature of how it is designed, and it's maybe it's it's like a very Marshall McLuhan kind of topic the, the medium is the message. So, so the way in which AI is designed and and. And what it, it, it what it can produce with its own means is already some form or some sort of bias. So I'm really interested in actually um, taking this project further into kind of developing this this strange narratives of synthetic histories. that have never happened, but AI might think that this is this is the case. This is what was happened. <laughs>
0: And that's probably an interesting bridge to build, you know, to think about the concept of the death of the author as famously proclaimed by Roland Barthes and maybe its influence on the reader and the spectator as agents taking over.
1: Yeah, it's it's a legitimate concern to wonder how this informs the overall conversation about artificial intelligence.
0: I mean,
2: in in my approach to this project, I was trying my best to withdraw my... Uh, authority as much as i could obviously it is just impossible right? it's me showing the work it's me initiating the research it's me going deep into every detail into what kind of marble am i going to use what kind of 3d prints what is data set consisting of and what kind of uh, adversarial network am i going to choose for this or that research but of course i'm playing a lot with this idea of the absence of author um which is a which is not a new idea anyway, right? And it has been in, in the history of arts, it has been many times approached in, in various different forms. And I'm also interested in this. So I'm not I'm trying I'm I would say I'm deliberately trying to kind of have as less of my own um, authority and decision making in the process of, of working. But what I'm really interested in, actually, in relation to uh, to, to the death of author, the Bart's ideas of death of author, it is indeed a, a different perspective now um, that probably could have been unseen back then when, when the text was written. I think in this case we are dealing with the with the situation in which, indeed, we can clearly state that there is a death of author as an artist, um, but then also. We can also speculate about a death of a spectator. There is no there's in this in this situation there is no need for a spectator or the author. And partially also if we look closely and deeper into the technology, for example, AI that I was using for content to studies project, the architecture of all the algorithm is built in such a way that it actually has two parts, it has two entities. One of them is called generator and the other one is called discriminator. Which which we can of course easily kind of portray onto the, onto the situation of now where we have an author, or we have a critic, or we have a spectator. Um, and I think what's interesting is that what happens in AI is exactly this. So there is one algorithm that generates stuff and then there's the other algorithm that is trying to prove that the generator is wrong. And the moment where where one convinces the other the result, like, we get the result, We get the outcomes of, of its constant work. We can also fine-tune it. A little, we have a little bit of control. We can say generator has a little more of, of um, authority or a discriminator has more of authority. And probably in the second case, for example, if we're trying to, to reach a very hyper-realistic kind of outcomes from AI generating things, then, like, the higher you get, the higher degree of, discrimination you put in the system the more the harder it would be for a generator to go wrong but then it's also it might take enormously long and and all this kind of technical problems that you might have but it's really interesting to think of that like yes i mean also hito is has been referring i think a number of times about uh, the situation now in which um machines produce more content for machines that we as humans produce for humans yesterday i was looking at i was watching the uh, the gpu conference a so-called conference for people involved in gpu technologies and uh, a ceo of, of nvidia a leading company was talking about the same thing, but like from a very technical perspective, he was talking about servers and how that and the situation in which there is much more data circulating between servers than between humans and computers.
1: But finally, is, not, is it not like the programmer himself or like the designer who is behind the, the AI that finally is uh, the author since like the machine is running by itself? In a way, yes, but there is. But
2: it's also getting more and more difficult to uh, point out one particular author because very often it's a collaborative process in which a part of a code is being utilized further, and also the code, the AI code, the neural networks, the way in which they are constructed is actually very simple. It's a very simple. Um, it's fairly simple process, and what happens, for example, in the case of uh, generating imagery is that you have a data set of consisting consisting of for example thousands of images they all feature the same subjects the portraits for example of classical antiquity and then what happens is the algorithm multiplies each pixel of this of the metrics mat- and for all these 10 images are let's say they're 500 by 500 pixels. And so, what happens in the, in, the, in the algorithm is the algorithm is calculating the correlation between all those pixels. So, it's, it's basically multiplying one pixel to all the other pixels on the all, all the other images. It's not a very um, difficult sort of construction. It's,
1: it's, it's, it's a very basic mathematics, in a way. But, like, what is, as, as an artist, like, how do you reflect... I would say, like speculatively, this problematic. If you think about a, a perspective in the in a far future, what can you what can you do, and what are you doing? I think what I'm doing with this project is uh, is
2: something that many people are doing at the same time. So they're training AI's on certain subjects. Once we get these pre-trained models, some of them are better, some of them are worse. But then, if you actually have all these models portrayed on all the particular subjects, then we can also possibly speculate about a way of how to merge all of them, all of these models into one single entity that is maybe also is capable of self-learning. And so then we can also speculate about this potential future of AI that is a much more advanced technology and it's much more uh, similar in the way it operates to to how how our cognition Works.
1: But I try to bring you actually like to this film that you were uh, making with Pekka Arachin, Alina Krikeveva, Karina Golubenko, because you were like uh, making a collective work with two architects and one journalist. I, I was curious a bit to first maybe to understand like how such a collaboration took place and what you were trying to express with this film called Air Kiss. So, um, the whole project
2: was initiated during our uh, postgrad research think-tank program at Strelka Institute in Moscow, which, is, which was led by uh, the amazing Benjamin Bratton, who is a Californian uh, writer and a theorist in, in media and architecture and design, and also arts. Uh, he's a professor of fine arts at the University College of San Diego. So what we did was we had, we, had to, we had to come up with a certain design proposal for the future. We were, we were a group of very multidisciplinary people. Uh, the whole program consisted of like 30 people from all over the place in all various disciplines, but mostly related to technology in one or the other way, in, in applied or in a very you know, theoretical way, looking at technology through technology or through humanities. I think we took like the most broad topic because we and, and kind of the most uh, open-ended sort of topic, which was a very kind of like blurry edge. We don't, we don't really... It's a very kind of big and very speculative idea of replacing a political apparatus with AI. And so first we were looking into how can it come about. Then we were looking into... Because, you know, we, there, is, there are existing power structures, states are big power structures but we can also think of and look at the technologies that are forces that somehow breaking through these power structures or disrupting these power structures in in a very unpredicting ways very often and we have had a lot of these instances in the last last 15 years right um so we can also think and, and i would claim that technology is a driving or a leading force for for many other processes and so the idea was, okay, if we uh, try to remove uh, like a human as a decision-making agency from the governing strategies uh, structures from the governing apparatus, uh, how can the system function? And we and we build a map, like a model, uh, in which in in which we try to implement the uh, the very basic and the very uh, direct idea of democracy so that it's a cloud-based system it's a collectively owned there is no entity that would own the system more than, than than any other entity that participates in the system and it's also a um it's an automated system it's a self reg- regulatory system but but the way decisions are made they're still made by humans in a very democratic manner so um so we would just send requests to it every every second or like every moment that we want instead of you know voting for a person that would do it on our behalf and then we could supposedly somehow trace these decisions or 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 influence them in 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 any way
1: but is it related for you with a kind of digital humanities studies is it like really thinking and trying to concretely plan the future is it a a possibility for you that we will develop our democratic system with AI. I mean, I think it's
2: very interesting to think about it. I, I mean, there is there is definitely a potential to this. I was priced and also inspired that maybe a few months after our project was 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 first time published and first time screens, and the outcomes is is a film and also a book. Um, I saw there was this campaign in Russia um, that was to do with some, yeah, I think it was presidential elections. And there was a campaign about kind of suggesting Alisa. Alisa is an equivalent of uh, Siri. So in, 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 you know, we have Siri in Apple and there is also a Yandex. And Yandex is a huge techno company based in, in Russia, which is almost equivalent to Google. It's very big and very, very important. They have, for example, they have local all the local Uber is maintained and, and designed by by this company. Um, and they have Alisa. It's a it's a artificial intelligence development. It's a it's a voice interface, basically the same as Siri. It, they claim it to be more advanced than Siri, and I think it's actually true. You can have a more complicated dialogue uh, with it, so you can have a few kind of steps off Uh, of communication not that you would get an answer and then you you go back and to where you started Uh, and there was this campaign actually which was like a which was presented more like a meme uh, all over the social media where someone was just like proposing Alisa for a president so let's all vote for Alisa and I found it very interesting I found it like yes I mean this is it's, 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 it's this very thing you know it's like if it is uh, if we see these ideas in popular culture, then they probably are occupying some minds, right? So I think there's nothing really new about it. There was many kind of potential utopian scenarios about 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 this type of governance in this type of system. but like seeing the developments and the recent achievements in in the field of machine
1: learning and AI was kind of clear idea to go and try. Is it a kind of utopia for you? do you? Do you look at it maybe as well in an activist sense? Of course, there is this degree of utopia and there is this
2: degree of of this uh, kind of proposal for the future in the film, but there is also a very dystopian note to it. There is also a very, uh, there is also looking at it as this kind of ubiquitous form of computation. That, uh, that is so precise and it's so fair and it's so correct and it knows so much and knows every single little detail about everything that's happening in real time. Then one of the kind of foreseen disasters in this would be um, how would then we as humans that have tendencies to think the, uh, irrationally or like to have kind of like operate on this kind of irrational reasoning how then we coexist with this ubiquitous mathematics or like with this ubiquitous order? You know, if we are, me and you are sitting in this room right now, which is um, uh, which is actually designed in this uh, very uh, straightforward and simple geo- geometric rules, we are uh, governed by, by these by this geometries, right? So we designed the table and we think that this is convenient. But then uh, we just take a simple geometry and make this tabletop. And it is convenient, but we also governed by this convenience or by this order, uh, which is a very synthetic order in a way, right? And then um, the idea was to look into this kind of dystopian future also in which you're not sure you really want to live in such, where everything is quantified and put into system and uh, and organized to uh, in this purely... Uh, correct in mathematical
1: order. Hey thanks a lot, Egor. Thank you Bernard.
0: That was such an insightful talk. I mean I'm really curious to see what was Philip's take on Egger's suggested essays. Maybe you want to tell us more about what has Egger suggested his essays? Yeah, Egor
1: suggested three. Um, he suggested first AI aesthetics by Levmanovich. Then Black Accelerationism by Mackenzie Work. And finally The Stack and the Post-Human User, an interview with Benjamin Bratton. Philip chose to pick up the first one, AI Aesthetic by Levmanovich, and I'm curious about his review.
0: Yeah, and as usual, you can find all of those references online on our website www.art-werk.ch VEC is written W-E-R-K. <laughs>
3: Well, as we've seen, Egor Kraft makes work with artificial intelligence, but he also makes work about it. And he can do that because this technology is widely available. The idea of artificial intelligence is much older than the actual technology. Think of Alan Turing and his famous test, designed to determine whether a machine can pretend to be a human, a highly hypothetical idea in 1950. Or remember the malicious and neurotic computer hell that refuses to be switched off in Stanley Kubrick's 1968 science fiction movie, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Those visions from the space age of the 20th century paint a picture in which AI simulates the many operations of a single human mind. That's what Lev Manovich writes in his essay AI Aesthetics. But the artist and cultural theorist sets out to dismantle this assumption. And instead, he wants to show the manifold ways in which machines can think. Computers today perform endless intelligent operations, he writes. Since the 2000s, when big data was a trend, neural networks have been implemented in a lot of technologies and services. We know all that. But Manovich is really interested in how AI takes part in aesthetic creation and selection. He writes about the automatic analysis of pictures, about the selection and creation of image content. Now, a staple argument in cultural pessimism is the fear of loss, and the digital age is no exception to that. When Instagram grants images the biggest reach if they conform to a simple set of formal features, when YouTube leads users to ever-new videos according to the paths other viewers have taken, when huge datasets collected by neural networks will dictate aesthetic choices, what happens to aesthetic diversity? The pessimistic version goes like this. In the single cultural marketplace, the merchandise is unified. Whatever is the most popular will become the norm. Manovich doesn't subscribe to this nightmare of liberalism. In fact, he concedes AI-selected se- content may even increase aesthetic diversity because local cultural DNAs, he calls it, become available all over the world. But let's be honest, these fears are as old as mass media. As soon as reproduced images and sounds are widely available, someone will complain about aesthetic unification. Any kind of cultural liberalism is sure to trigger this critique in some way or another. Manovich's book gets much more interesting when he speaks about the creative potential of artificial intelligence and when he tackles the question if AI will replace professional cultural creators. Again, this idea is much older than the actual technology of neural networks. In the 1960s, artists and composers became interested in ways to make art that almost creates itself without an author. Think of the machine-like output of Andy Warhol of John Cage's compositions that try to open music to chance. But the idea of machine aesthetic is more palpable in works that have no references to the human world at all, like the compositions of Yannis Zenakis, No figuration, no characters, disembodied voices. They are, so to speak, algorithmically generated. Manuvic, in his own work as an artist, uses AI to generate parodies of experimental cinema He observes that experimental art has very loose genre conventions and is very forgiving towards the inaccuracies of machine-generated montage and plot. Recently, AI-generated content has found its way into mainstream productions. Take the series Game of Thrones, an algorithm suggested plot ideas, which then has been confirmed or dismissed by the writers of the show. AI has also been instrumental in the creation of recent movie trailers. And this brings us back to the basic creative functions, creation and selection. Manovich's short book is a treasure trove in terms of genealogy. It is easy to get lost with him in the instances of early generative artworks up to recent uses of algorithms. But his conclusion is disappointing. He writes that our age is characterized by an unprecedented scale of production and circulation and artificial intelligence is crucial in this ecosystem. His essay is good at giving an overview of generative art and the role of machines in culture, but it is weak on, an, on the analysis of his findings. Indeed, it is not, as the title promises, an AI aesthetics, but an enumeration of uses connected to the aesthetic, film, painting, literature, and music. But maybe that is already valid groundwork, a first step that has to be undertaken towards contemporary aesthetics of artificial intelligence. AI Aesthetics by Lev Monovitch has been published by the Straka Institute.
0: Thanks for listening to the show. This was Unraveled, the Advec podcast. The show is hosted by Bernard Vienna, Filipenda, and Nina Ketegur, myself. It is produced by Advec. Our theme song and jingle were produced by artist and musician Laura Katsawa. As we are starting new with the podcast, please send comments and suggestions to Unraveled at art-werk.ch Werk is written W-E-R-K You can find all images of the works and informations discussed in this episode on our page www.art-werk.ch If you would like to advertise or sponsor one episode, please write at Contact at art-werk.ch